invisible. As we go to the Lord in prayer this morning, I want to read first from Psalm chapter 2 as we prepare our hearts in prayer. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Father, we come this morning to take refuge in you. First and foremost, that is our heart this morning, is by our very presence and attendance in this room this morning, we reject the ways of the world. We reject the answers of the world. We reject whatever solutions the world may offer us, and we walk into this room, and by our very presence in these seats, we are saying, Father, you have something for us. There's some other way. And so, God, we ask you to meet us in that place, the place of refuge. Because, Father, we know that you are a good God, a generous God. But help us to believe it every day. Because the circumstances of our world, the circumstances of our individual lives, cause us to question, cause us to doubt, cause us to wonder, God, what is your purpose? What is your plan? What are you doing in this thing that's right in front of me? So God, we've heard of your goodness. We've heard of your grace. We know that it is true. But God, as we collectively open our hearts to you this morning, I pray you help us believe and know that we know that your goodness and your grace is true. And we have a place of refuge, not in this building, but in your presence. This building doesn't give us refuge. You give us refuge. And Father, as we see the nations of the world raging, we pray for those that are in harm's way this morning all over the world, God the events of Israel, Gaza, over the last week have just given us another reason to remember that the only place to seek true refuge is in you. And so, Father, we pray for those that are suffering. We pray for the lives, for the families of the lives that have already been lost. 
pray, Father, for your presence in people that are suffering. God, we've prayed many times for Ukraine and for Russia. We've prayed for peace. We've prayed for your presence. We have prayed for lives to be saved. And God, we pray the same in Israel and in Gaza. We do not want to see and hear of any more image bearers of you losing their lives. But Father, we know you are sovereign. We know you have a plan. And we know as nations rage, you watch down from heaven, knowing that you're ultimately orchestrating your purposes in it all. And so God, give us wisdom to know how to walk in that knowledge. Give us wisdom to know how to pray in the moment of of despair when we see the tragedies unfolding in front of us. Give us hope for the situation in our own divided nation, in our own divided community, in our own divided families, God. Give us hope that there is refuge in you. God, as we seek your, your truth and your scriptures, it seems clear that up until Christ's return, we'll see more and more raging of nations. And so God, prepare us to be salt and light as nations rage. Because you've given your people a calling. You've given your people, the church, a responsibility in these days to love you, to serve you, and to proclaim your name and your glory to all nations. And as Psalm 2 says, you give the nations as a heritage to your son Jesus. And so, Father, we want to see that come to fruition before our eyes. As the world sees nothing but nations raging, Father, we want to look in deeper spiritual eyes and see you working. Father, show us how your kingdom can expand even in these dark days. So yes, God, we pray for peace. We pray as your word asks us to, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But Father, we pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. In Israel, in Gaza, in Ukraine, in the United States of America, as it is in heaven. We're ultimately praying for your return, O oh Jesus. We're praying for your kingdom to come in fullness. But Father, while we wait, while we remain in the last hour, as your word tells us, give us the wisdom to walk as your representatives, to walk as your light. Because Father, the opportunities are many. And we miss them every day. Show us. Show us how to bring the love of Christ, the hope of Christ, and the light into the world around us. God, I pray specifically for our community and how we respond to the tragic events we see unfolding all around us. God, I pray for the community of Fellowship Bible Church that we would respond not in fear but in prayer and dependence. Father, as Jason showed us last week, that we would 
have an anchor strong enough to deal with the challenges that come our way and that your hope, your promises would anchor us and that, Father, you would give us joy in these circumstances because, Father, it is joy, it is hope, it is peace that surpasses all understanding that the world needs and the world will see in us when we are not quivering in fear of the world and circumstances, we are abiding in hope because of what you have already done and what you have promised to do in us, through us, and for us into all eternity. So Father, build your church here at Fellowship Bible Church around the world. Build your church so that the nations would know that there is hope in this world. There is hope, not just in the life to come, but in this life, in Jesus, and what you've done and what you've promised. God, as we open the word this morning, may we see your joy in it. May we see your hope as we gather around your table to commune with you through the broken body and shed blood. God, fill us again with the hope of the cross so that we can stand in the challenges we face. Speak to us through your word. Speak to us through this service. Father, I pray for every individual, for every family to go out of this place this morning strengthened in the hope that only you can give. And it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here with us this morning to worship our risen Savior. We'll go ahead and let the kids be dismissed to their classes upstairs. So that's fifth grade and under. You guys can go ahead and make your way out to the lobby, meet your teachers out there. And parents, you can pick them up at the end of the service. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here um, as we enjoy a fall day. Um, it's a little chilly and it's an exciting season for us. Um, summer's over, we hope. And now we can just enjoy fall and leaves and football and the good stuff. It's that kind of a season of the year. We have a lot going on, though. Um, so I've got seven things to tell you before we open the word. So strap in. Here we go. Um, tonight starts the practices for the children's show, the children's Christmas show. Now, there's different groups practicing different amounts of time. So the, there's a, you should have received an email if you signed up for it. If you didn't receive an email, talk to Jason or Emily Hundley today to see if your kids are due a practice tonight or if your kids are starting practice um, in the coming weeks. Because some start tonight, not all of the kids start tonight. We do also have on Wednesday nights, our Christmas choir is up and running for our uh, Christmas, our adult Christmas choir. You can scan the QR code. You can talk to Jason about joining that. Um, this Saturday, men's ministry, we have another men's breakfast. We'd love to have you guys there. It's one of my favorite things to do with the men of the church. Um, and then, so we do this once a, once a month. So um, this Saturday is, is one coming up. Um, actually, am I, is that date right? Is it the 21st? Yes, it is the 21st. I have it wrong on my sheet, but it's right on the screen. Good job, screen. October 21st, it's also right on this sheet right here. Um, that is this Saturday. We do it once a month. Our November date I want you all to write it down. November date for men's breakfast is November 11th. But that's going to be a full fall day. 
It's going to be awesome. So we're going to have men's breakfast in the morning. But then some of the guys are going to hang around, and they're going to start cooking for that evening when we have a fall cookout that families are invited to. Everyone's invited. That evening, we'll probably eat around 5.30, I think. But we'll have games for kids. We'll have inflatables. I think those start at like 4 o'clock. We want you to invite other families in. We want it to be an outreach event, a community event. That is November 11th. So save that date. There's, we're, we'll send you out the whole schedule. I think it was in the weekly newsletter, which comes on Fridays in your email. Um, and you can scan that QR code to make sure you're on that list. But uh, it's going to be a fun day, a full day um, from the men's breakfast to a bunch of guys hanging out, smoking meat, watching football, just hanging out throughout the late morning into the afternoon, and then ready for everyone to come in and kids to play and families to have time together uh, that evening for, for dinner. So we'd love to have you there for that. But then the Saturday before that, we'd also love to have you here. That, the 11, November the 4th, is our prayer conference. So two straight Saturdays in November, a lot going on here. We want you for the prayer conference. It's going to be 8.30 to 2.30, 3 o'clock um, on Saturday the 4th. We'll have Al Whittinghill, one of our sponsored missionaries who has done teaching and leadership and prayer all around the world and is um, actually doing a prayer conference before he comes here. He's doing a prayer conference in New England with some churches up there that we can be praying for him as he does that. And then he's going to come and join with us in uh, teach us about prayer, motivate us to pray, and this is something that our elders really have jumped into, that we want to see God lead us through being connected to him in prayer, which is why we also have those prayer guides, those prayer calendars that we distributed over the last couple of weeks. There's still some more on the back table in this room or in the lobby, so you can be daily preparing in prayer as we move towards that event. Um, and then the last two things I need to tell you, oh, also for that prayer conference, there's going to be a kids' prayer conference that day too. So we'll have some kids' ministry, some of it's teaching on prayer, some of it's doing prayer, and some of it's kids having fun, and that's all good. And so we'd love for the whole family to be here that day on Saturday the 4th. Um, next Sunday, we'll have a baptism service, in-service Sunday morning. Um, so we've got three people signed up to do that right now. If you're interested in taking the step of public proclamation of what Christ has done in you for your salvation and want to come to be baptized, um, come and talk to me about it after the service today or shoot me an email or something, and we can still add more for that day next Sunday. We also have one coming up probably in November as well because we've got right now five people lined up. So three will do it this um, next week, and we'll have a couple more that will do it later in the fall. Um, also, early November, we're going to do another uh, baby and young child uh, dedication. And so we've got uh, two, a couple of families signed up for that already. That will be one of the first couple of Sundays in November. So if you're interested in either of those public statements, either baptism as I have given my life to Christ and I want to publicly proclaim in front of people the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and what he has done to save me, an important step for all Christians to make the public step of baptism. Uh, come and talk to me about it. We'd love to add to that list. And then also um, baby dedication as a way of proclaiming, again, a public ceremony to proclaim, God has given me this child and I'm going to bring this child up the way that God has instructed us to in the word and I need help. That's part of what baby dedication says. I need help from God and his word. I need help from the Christian community. 
And so I come to dedicate my child before God and to ask for your prayer and support in doing that. So it's a, it's a multiple direction uh, arrangement there as we dedicate children to the Lord. So we'd love to have any more added to that. Um, turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. We're going to talk about laughter today. Um, as we prayed, um, this has been a very serious and heavy week in our world. And it's right and fitting to pray and to pray for Israel and pray for the events of any war going on around the world. But this one hits, hits close um, for Christians and believers. Um, it's one of the few times I can look at a, a global engagement and see war in a nation that I've actually been to and visited. And so kind of having a, a connection, not just spiritually, biblically to the land of Israel, but having been there and visited the land, uh, it's a deep and emotional connection point for many. We, we pray. We pray for, for this conflict. It is interesting, interesting that God has um, kind of moved in my heart over the course of maybe about six months to be in this section of Scripture at this time, where I'm just going to tell you, because I haven't told you all of what we're doing, but you know that we've spent two weeks on Abraham. We're about to spend a couple more weeks on Abraham. And a couple more weeks of today and next Sunday on Abraham specifically relates to Abraham's two sons, Sarah and Isaac this week, and Hagar and Ishmael next week. And that has a lot to say about things that go on in the world, in the conflicts that we see today. So just know next week we'll be talking about Hagar and Ishmael. And there's a lot said about Ishmael and a lot said about um, the Arab world as descendants of Ishmael and that kind of stuff. We're going to talk about that a little bit next week, not because of what's going on in Israel and Gaza, because that's what God led me to do about six months ago um, that was on the schedule for next Sunday. Um, so just be, be thinking and considering that, be in prayer, of course, for the events around the world, but that God would speak to us through his scriptures as we basically in November or in October, sorry, it's October, not November, in October, looking at multiple different ways Abraham and his immediate family encounter God over these few weeks. And uh, this third encounter with God, where God comes to Abraham and directly interacts with him, is in Genesis 18. And the theme of the passage is laughter. Now, in parenting, you know, I know, I've learned, every kid is a little bit different. And we have three children, and one of them is obsessed with laughter, to the point that one of his great claims to fame was in first grade, I guess, he was given the, the designation from his teachers as being the class comedian. Because now, it wasn't the class clown, which we were very thankful for, but something about class comedian, his teachers, I guess it was, was it kindergarten? It was kindergarten. Kindergarten, he was the class comedian. Because it was a COVID year, it was rough, everything was dramatic, and the teachers just said, we love Jericho so much because he just makes us laugh. And we were like, oh, thank goodness, because we thought that was a problem. Like, we really thought that was disruptive, and if you name a kid a class comedian, it's like, no, you kid, you need to tone it down a little bit. But what we've learned with Jericho is he loves to laugh, he's so motivated by getting other people to laugh, but there, there's different types of laughter. There's different ways to make people laugh. And that's part of the maturing process with Jericho. Our role as parents is to say like, okay, Jericho, laughter is good. It's good to make people laugh, but we got to think about the context. Not all 
circumstances or the right circumstances to tell jokes and be goofy and try to make people laugh. And when you get into that motivation of I'm going to make people laugh at all costs, then you might get into the wrong kind of humor. And maybe they're not laughing with you and they're laughing at you because you're just making a spectacle. We've also had to talk about, hey, Jericho, you can make people laugh, but not at the expense of other people. That's a, that's a very dangerous line in laughter. That's the cheap and easy laugh, right? Is laughing at the expense of other people. And, and every boy knows that and has been there. And listen, I was, I was a boy once too. And I get it. Seeing people do, do stupid things is really funny. And if you've ever been to Baja Coop, anybody like Baja Coop? Baja Coop's one of my family's favorite restaurants. When you take Jericho into Baja Coop, Jericho's eyes are glued. What they, I don't know what the channel is, but Baja Coop regularly has this looping channel on one of their TVs that is just little short viral videos of people falling the whole time. So you can sit there all through your, your meal and just watch people fall. And that is like low-hanging fruit laughter. That's the sort of stuff that everyone likes to laugh about. But we know as we talk about this, that there are different types of laughter and different circumstances in which laughter can be a good thing, can be a bad thing. And it's a really interesting theme in this section of Genesis because there's multiple laughs that get, that get talked about. And so that's sort of what we're trying to do today is how God encounters the laughing people over the next two weeks. Abraham laughs, Sarah laughs, and Ishmael laughs. And that frames a lot of our narrative for the next couple of weeks in the scriptures. Oh, I almost forgot, and I told Jericho I would do this. I said, Jericho, I'm going to talk about you. I'm going to talk about laughter. Give me a joke so I can make sure that people laugh today. So this is from Jericho. What does a shark need to be healthy? Vitamin C. There's a little bit of a delay. Jericho's favorite, though, is, hey, have you heard the one about the peacock. It's a beautiful tale. I'll tell him that one got a little bit more. I said, Jericho, I need two jokes for today. Those were, those were his go-tos. Um, Genesis 18, chapter, or chapter 18, verse 1. Now, Jason last week was with us in Genesis 17. If you weren't here, um, it was fall break. I was gone. Lots of people were gone. Go back and listen to Jason uh, present Genesis 17 to us. There's so much foundational material in there for God's relationship to Abraham and the line that would come through Abraham, which, oh, by the way, is the line that we as Christians are grafted into, so that in, in one sense we are all children of Abraham by the promise that is fulfilled in Jesus. And so it's an important understanding of just how covenants work in the Scripture. Genesis 17 is so rich and so important. So I commend that message to you commend that passage to you. In Genesis 17, um, Abraham and God are interacting, and it's just, a, part of it is a restatement of previous things that we've seen God say to Abraham, of the blessing of chapter 12, and restated in chapter 15, and then uh, chapter 17. There, there's all this talk about covenants and promises, and here we go into chapter 18, and the Lord Biblical note. Sorry, I haven't even read a verse yet. I'm going to get there. Um, I read three words. And the Lord. Verse 1 of Genesis chapter 18. I want to show you something that's important as we read through the passage. 
I want you to look at the first three words of verse 1 in chapter 18 and the first four words of chapter 3, of, of verse 3, sorry, 18.1 and 18.3. And the Lord in verse 1. Abraham says in verse 3, and said, O Lord. Those two words for Lord are different. And it's an important part of this passage. And it's just something important as you read and study the Old Testament, okay? Probably, as you're looking at your Bible, at your version of the Scriptures, whether it's on your phone or a printed Bible in front of you, you look and, and the Lord, in verse 1 of chapter 18, Lord is all caps. And probably it's all caps with the L a little bit bigger than, than the other, but it's an all caps word. That is the English translator's way of telling you that the Hebrew word they're translating there is Yahweh, the name of God. So, verse 1 says, and Yahweh appeared to him, okay? So that's the narrator of Genesis, the author of Genesis saying, Yahweh, this is the person, Yahweh is here, okay? Uh, verse 3, Abraham says, O Lord. That word is not Yahweh, and that's why it's not capitalized, the L is, but not the O-R-D, in your version of the scriptures. That's Adonai. That's a, that's a name for God. That's, that's Abraham recognizing he's speaking to God, but he's not using the intimate name of Yahweh. So, this is important, okay? This is important as you read your scriptures to recognize, like, anytime you see that, Lord, all capitalized, that's Yahweh. And there is no mistake that Yahweh, I am who I am, is God, the supreme God, the ruler over all the earth. So it's weird, because in Genesis 18, as we read this, three men show up. But one of the three men is God himself. So Genesis 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to him <clears throat> by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seeds of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She's in the tent. And the Lord, Yahweh, said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old. They were advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, Yahweh said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? 
is anything too hard for Yahweh? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, because she was afraid. He said, God said, Yahweh said, no, you did laugh. The context of this encounter is really interesting and really hard, and it's a context that most of us know. It's actually a really famous story from Scripture. All throughout these, this portion of the Scripture, these are stories that we know and are familiar with. We know that God chose Abraham and promised Abraham, you will have many nations will, will come to you or will come from you. You'll have land, you'll have a blessing, and you'll have a seed, a, a nation that will come from you. You'll be the father of actually many nations. In fact, God changes his name from Abram, which basically just means father, to Abraham, which means father of many. And so inherent in his name from the beginning is that he would be a father. But then as it expands, God's, God's plan expands more and more. He says, no, 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 it's not just one. It's many children are going to come from you. But the context of this story, why are those men here? What are they doing here? It actually helps us understand a lot about what's going on here. So here's, here's how we're going to unpack this passage today. We're going to ask a couple questions. Who are these people? What are they doing? And what is going on with Sarah? And we're eventually going to get to this concept of laughter in this passage and how it frames how we understand our own encounters with God, our own faith in God, and the big question of the passage. The central question of the passage, is anything impossible for Yahweh? Is anything impossible with God? So who are these people? Well, obviously, I already told you that um, Yahweh is identified as the speaker by the author of Genesis. Uh, Abraham continually refers to him as Adonai, but he's continually referred to in the narrative as Yahweh. And, yet he, and then he also kind of refers to himself as Yahweh, because Yahweh himself said, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for Yahweh? And so it, these are really interesting passages, okay? Because you, you put on your Trinitarian lens, and you think, okay, God is, is one, but he's also three, and some of you already shut your brains down because it's confusing, but go with me for just a second. And you say, how is God showing up like a man, is that God the Father? Is that Jesus the Son? Is that the Spirit? Is this an angel? What is going on here? Now, oftentimes in the scriptures, you see these angels of the Lord, which means messenger of the Lord, shows up to speak to people. But then there are times when you look closer and you think, who is the angel of the Lord? Who is the messenger of the Lord? And this is a really significant one because this is not identified as the angel of the Lord, as the messenger of the Lord. This is identified as Yahweh himself, sitting down, having a meal, having lunch under the oaks of Mamre with, with Abraham, his chosen leader of, of the people of God. And so I, the question is, who is this? I, I'm just going to tell you, I think it's Jesus. I think this is what we see in the Old Testament several times, the Messiah, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who is the eternally sent one. God is 
from all eternity, the one who sends Jesus. And Jesus is the one who is sent from God to people. And the Spirit comes in the aftermath of Jesus' being sent. That's how the Trinity works together. Now, another point, you get in trouble theologically when you separate the work of the Trinity too much. Father, Son, Spirit, we, the term to describe the working of the Trinity is inseparable operations, meaning they don't have separate wills. They're not doing things against each other or separate from each other. They're doing things in perfect unity and perfect conjunction. But what's interesting here, or with the commander who meets with Joshua right before Jericho, or with, with all of these other instances where the angel of the Lord shows up, it's interesting to think, this is a pre-incarnate Christ. This is Jesus before he came to be born of a virgin, came to, to live as, as the Messiah. This is the second person of the Trinity. Is that a for sure thing? Is the scriptures stipulate that exactly? Not necessarily, but it seems to be the right conclusion to all the narratives that we have. Yahweh, three in one, shows up as the second person of the Trinity. When God puts flesh on, that's the second person of the Trinity, the son showing up to talk to Abraham. Super cool. Super cool to see the Messiah being the one, sitting down, having a meal. The meal is significant. What are they doing? Well, there's, there's a couple of main purposes in what they are doing. But the first thing they do is they have a meal. The meal is a covenantal meal. And what's a covenantal meal? Well, in, in the scriptures and in this ancient understanding of covenant, one of the important activities that was done after a covenant was cut, after a covenant was established, and all covenants were established by blood. You can't make a covenant. In Hebrew, you can only cut a covenant. You can't form it by signatures. You have to cut something in order for a covenant to be formed, which is why covenants are formed by blood. But after that, cutting of a covenant comes a covenantal meal where two parties who have just made an, an arrangement made an agreement together can now join together in a covenantal meal this is a covenantal meal where abraham and god who with whom he's just made this covenant that jason described to you last week here they're sitting down and they're having a meal together a meal that sarah has provided and and other servants of abraham have have put together this meal so that Jesus and the two likely angels that are with him can be there and can enjoy this covenantal meal. It's crazy when you see the scriptures as one narrative and understand what's going on from a Hebrew perspective and, and into the new covenant perspective that is fulfilled in Jesus to see the whole narrative come together and see the significance of this interaction. But we're still answering the question, what are they doing? They're having a meal. There's two other things. Number one, they're here with a message for Abraham and Sarah. And what our narrative presents to us today is that this interaction is more about Sarah than Abraham. Now, this is a, this is a promise that Abraham has heard before. Abraham's already been told he's going to have a son. And Abraham and Sarah already acted in unbelief. Because at this point, we're in chapter 18, you go back two chapters to chapter 16, you see that Sarah, who was also called Sarah, at the time was saying, Abram, we don't have a child. Here's Hagar, my servant, have a child with her. 
and he will be your heir. And because Hagar's my servant, Sarah says that child that comes from that relationship between servant and Abraham will be Sarah's child. That's the way it worked within the culture of the day. So Sarah is saying, this child is going to be mine. Now that goes poorly. And we could talk about that. We're going to talk about that more next week when we look at Hagar and Ishmael. But just so you know, anytime you have a question about the scriptures and polygamy and all of these things where, where one man in the scripture takes another woman to be a wife, this is not the Bible condoning this behavior. And, and I can tell you how we know that because never does it go well. It always ends poorly. Every time this happens in the scriptures, whether it's, whether it's Abraham here or whether it's Solomon, whoever, David, whoever it is, those things go poorly in the scriptures. So we have to say, these are people operating within the culture of the day, learning progressively more about who Yahweh is and what Yahweh expects of them, but it's not something that God is condoning and it's something that always goes badly. Um, so they deliver a promise. And this is the first time that we know for sure Sarah receives this direct promise. Abraham's received the direct promise. Sarah probably didn't fully believe it. At this point, Sarah is old enough to where she, if she believed what Abraham told her was promised before, she now doesn't believe it. So this interaction is not about Abraham right now. It's about Sarah. But there's some bad news here. There's some hard, there's another famous story that is engulfed in this whole interaction. The other reason they are there is Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the narrative in which, picking up from where I left off, verses 16 and following, we see the men, second person of the Trinity, two angels, look towards Sodom and say, we got to tell, tell Abraham what's going on. And then Abraham negotiates and says, well, if there's, if there's 50 righteous people, if there's 40 righteous people, if there's 30 righteous people, you save Sodom. And in the end, there, there, there just aren't. There aren't righteous people in Sodom. There's Abraham's nephew, which they go and they rescue. But if you're familiar at all with the scriptural narrative of Sodom and Gomorrah, it's one of the hardest narratives in scripture because God completely wipes out these cities. And he rescues Lot and his wife and daughters from the cities. Um, but but Lot's wife perishes and turns into a pillar of salt and she looks back. It's a very, very difficult passage that is all about God's judgment and God's justice. And it's all about God's purity. That's the point of this narrative in Genesis 18 and following about Sodom and Gomorrah. God's purity. He cannot tolerate, tolerate sin. He cannot let sin go unchecked. But he does, he does protect righteousness and protect chosen people in the midst of the sinfulness of the society around. That's where Abraham and Lot stick out. Not because they're super righteous, but because God chooses them. God chooses them and God uses them. And by his choosing, they become righteous as they obey. So it's a difficult story, but understanding that they are there not just to deliver a promise, but also to judge Sodom and Gomorrah makes what happens in the interaction with Sarah all that much more significant. And frankly, all that much more surprising, strange even. What's going on with Sarah? How did Sarah get to this point? We see in Sarah's interaction that she is battling unbelief. 
she's battling despair, I think, the fatigue of age. We know that Sarah is old at this point. Look at, look at verse um, 11 and 12. She is not just old and advanced in years. There's uh, some detail in how old she is and what that means. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. What do you think that means? It, it means what you think it means. It means that it is biologically impossible at this point for Sarah to have a child. She is post-menopause. The way of women has ceased to be with Sarah. It's a Hebrew expression that comes up other places. So Sarah knew this isn't happening. So she laughed to herself. Laughed in derision. Laughed perhaps in despair. Laughed at just how comical this idea would even be. She says, after I am worn out, again, an expression that means my body's not going to bear children. That's impossible. That time has passed for me. And my Lord is old. Something as a statement about Abraham's age and health. Shall I have pleasure? Now, many people have said over the years that the pleasure being spoken of is the fact that for a woman in those days in an ancient society, what she wanted most was to be a mother. That was, that was important. That was, a, a child was like capital for a woman. Where because she, she became a mother, she was more significant, more important. And that's not actually what this, now that all that is true, but that's not actually what she's talking about in pleasure there. That is a sexual word. What she is saying there is we're not even doing anything anymore. There's no way. My body can't do it, and we're not doing it. And so there's no way this is going to happen. That's what is being told to us in 11 and 12. It's a little bit graphic, but that's what the Hebrew is saying. It's not just this is unlikely. This is impossible. And so, yeah, Sarah laughs. But she laughs because she has lived a long, long life with no children. She is 90 years old at this time. 90-year-olds don't have women in our day, and it wasn't apparently common in their day either. I know ages in Scripture and in the Old Testament can be weird sometimes. We're like, I don't know, Abraham's 190, but apparently it worked. No, it was a miracle then the way it would be a miracle now. But there's something about the laughter that God confronts. But if you go back just a few verses, Abraham laughs too. Uh, Genesis 17, we'll just go back a few verses. Uh, Genesis 17, 15 through 17. Now, this is one of the times, I told you, in chapter 18, Abraham had heard it before. I'm going to prove it to you. Chapter 17, here's where Abraham hears it before. Uh, verse 15 of chapter 17. God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Okay? So if it was confusing before, Abraham... Because I told you you were going to have a son. Then you did the whole Hagar Ishmael thing, which I didn't ask you to do. That was your and Sarah's idea. I'm going to make it abundantly clear. Abraham, chapter 17. You're going to have a child by Sarah, a son. I will bless her. She shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear 
a child. So what gives? Why is Abraham not in trouble for laughing and Sarah is? I think what this passage illustrates for us is that there are multiple different types of laughter, multiple different responses in laughter. And what I want us to walk away with today is that the laughter being described here is really emblematic of what they think about God, the extent to which they've encountered God, and and how their relationship with God is. There's Abraham, who's laughing in joy. It's too good to be true. Oh my God, how can this be true? It's too beautiful. This is joy. But Sarah's is more despair. How can this be true? It's too hurtful to think about. It's too painful to get my hopes up. Why are we still talking about this? God first gave that, pre- that promise to Abraham years ago. And then we tried the thing with, with Ishmael and with Hagar 14 years before this. And now, for 14 years, she's watched Ishmael grow up. She's still been thinking, maybe, maybe God has a plan for me. But then the way of women leaves her. And there's no plan for her. There's no hope for her. Not in her mind. So her, her laughter at this point is complete despair, maybe even derision. There's no way. Why? Why does this promise come again? Why is there somebody else telling my husband that this is going to happen? It's not going to happen. Can we just stop talking about it? It's easier if we just stop talking about it. But look at God's reaction to Sarah. This is what I think is so cool about this passage. Sarah questions this man. She doesn't openly question, but she's kind of sitting off in the tent by herself, and she hears this man who Abraham has recognized as Adonai. Abraham has recognized these are important people. He saw them coming from afar. He immediately recognized. He knew this is God. I've got to get food for God to serve him, and I've got to, to get on my best behavior. And Sarah's over here like, whoever this guy is, he's promised Abraham stuff before that hasn't come true. Why are we still doing this? Why are we still trusting in these promises? Why are we still playing this game? So off to herself, she's she's wallowing in despair and unbelief. And Yahweh, the God of heaven, that's that's how Abraham refers to him in this passage, the God of heaven, the ruler of, of all things. The God of heaven listens to her laughing at him. And what does Yahweh, the God of heaven, do? Does he boom with thunder? Does he call out in a loud voice? Does he become, does he move from this human form to this incredible angelic form? Do the heavens open up the way Isaiah saw God seated on a throne and fell at his face so that Sarah could be confronted? Did rain of fire come down from heaven like it would in just a few days on Sodom and Gomorrah? No, none of that happens. God Almighty looks at this woman and says, you did. And the conversation's over. That That was it. The God of justice, the God of judgment. See, here's here's what we do. We separate and we say, that's all about justice. It's all about judgment and wrath. But there's a really nice guy in this part. This part has this really nice gentle guy. 
But all of this, wrath, judgment, rain of fire. But look at how gentle God is. This isn't, this isn't something that is constrained to the New Testament, to Jesus walking on through Galilee in those three years. This is God, again, probably the second person of the Trinity, but God showing great gentleness to his chosen daughter. God showing great gentleness to his chosen daughter before she's acted in any faithfulness at all. Hebrews tossed Abraham up like Abraham's this great man of faith. But God chose Abraham before he did anything faithful. He just responded to the call that God put on him. Sarah has not received that call from God yet until right now. He kept coming to talk to Abraham. He kept telling stuff to Abraham. And Sarah's hearing everything secondhand and being like, it doesn't make sense. I'm getting old. You're getting old. I don't get it. And here God shows up, and this visit is not for Abraham. This is for Sarah. And then we fast forward a little bit. Chapter 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. Again, Yahweh. Yahweh visited Sarah as he has said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived, Genesis 21, verse 2, and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So all of a sudden in chapter 21, Sarah has the laugh of joy, of faith. This is too good to be true that Abraham had in 17. The laugh of despair of can we stop talking about this? I'm sick of talking about this. I don't want to reflect on this anymore. But God makes it very clear. There's three divine I told you so's in the first two verses of Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah, Sarah conceived and bore a son in the old age at the time God had spoken to him. Three different phrases, as he had promised, at the time he had said to him, as he had promised. God is making it very clear, this is not an accident, this is not a coincidence, this is God's doing. God has chosen something good, the impossible, to be made possible for Sarah herself. And he's proven it, and he's proven himself. So as I reflected on this, I just found so much hope in this passage. The, the single question, is anything too hard for Yahweh? Is anything impossible for Yahweh? But then as I look at the world around us, do people laugh today? Yeah. How do people laugh today? Good laugh, bad laugh, a little, little bit of both. I think there's lots of types of people laughing today, but a couple that I want to talk about as we kind of reflect on this passage. There's the laugh of derision. And sometimes this comes to us from people outside the church, outside the faith. 
people that are living their own lives that won't come to the church for any sort of guidance, that don't, don't open themselves up to believe in God. There's this laugh of derision. You're a fool to think it's true. That's the laugh of derision. The laugh of despair is a little bit more personal, a little bit more hurtful. The laugh of despair is somebody who maybe once believed, once had hope, once opened themselves up to faith, to Jesus, to the church, was let down. Whatever they were told would come true didn't come true. Maybe they they asked for God's uh, intervention in a traumatic situation and it didn't happen the way they thought it should or would. And the laugh of despair is, I'm a fool to think it's true. Derision, you're a fool if you actually believe that God is who he says he is, that it's true. Despair is, I'm a fool if I let myself hope again. I'm a fool if I open myself up. But see, the truth about Christianity, there's a great quote um, from G.K. Chesterton back in the day that said something similar to this, but the truth about Christianity is not that it's just so hard that we don't try it. The truth of Christianity is that the news is so good that we get stuck in this point of, can it really be that good? And some people will quibble with that and say, well, but the world is actually pretty messed up. So my concern with Christianity is that Christians are bad people, is that they're suffering is that there's all these different religions that, that, that doesn't seem like any of them agree on anything, so they can't all be, all be right or some be. How do we even know what's true? We can't know anything is true in this world anymore. There's so much evil. There's so much wickedness. I've experienced so much pain. But the beauty of Christianity is that it tells you God is good despite everything that you see. God has a plan despite all of the hardship you've experienced or people around you have experienced. And eternity still awaits. God is actually in control, even in the mess. We, we can't discern all of the purposes and plans in all of the mess. But we can trust that God is good, and he has a plan for us, and we can actually rest in joy. We, we just rest in the answers that we have. And so the problem with people rejecting Christianity, they often say it's just too hard to believe, it's too hard to believe, it's too hard to believe. But really, the story of it is, it is too wonderful to believe. It's too simple. The world has to be more complicated. It can't just be that there is a good God that is allowing all of this evil to happen. Shouldn't a good God do more? But Abraham and Sarah, both eventually, through an encounter with Jesus, get to the point of delight. Through derision, through despair, through all of the doubts, into the point of delight. Jesus wants to meet you in that same place. Jesus wants to meet you and move you from despair, from doubt, or even open derision, even open mocking of him. He'll meet you there, and he will move you to delight. But the question is, can you open up your heart, can you open up your mind to laugh a different way? I told you that one of the beautiful things about chapter 18 is that it's the celebration of a covenantal meal. 
where the God who established the covenant himself, cut the covenant himself in the presence of Abraham, calls unto Abraham and sits down and has a meal as an ultimate demonstration of peace. That's the beauty of a covenantal meal, is this is a demonstration that two sides that were once at war have been made at peace. And that's what we do this morning. That's what this table is. Is, is a demonstration of a covenant that has been established. That Jesus' own body has been cut, has been broken and bruised. Jesus' own blood has been shed. But the result of the covenantal meal is that we're at peace with God. This is an old 2,000-year-old thing that we're doing with, with traces that go back even farther into the Passover of ancient Israel. Is it a weird thing? Maybe it is. Maybe it is weird. It certainly se seems weird to the culture of our day to come together and celebrate someone that died 2,000 years ago and to eat his body and to drink his blood and to proclaim his resurrection. But what I want you to hear and what I want you to see is that there's hope at this table, and there's peace at this table. Every single one of us is broken. Every single one of us, you can kid yourself and you can deny it, but every single one of us has some level of pain, anxiety, heaviness on our hearts, minds, and spirits this morning. And if you are with Christ, come to the table and experience the peace of God afresh. Experience it in a new way. But if you're not at peace with God, this is the day you become at peace with God. By, by coming to this table and recognizing this is Jesus' body that is broken for you. I am a sinner and I have to confess my sin so that I can come to this table and receive the broken body and the shed blood. If you have never done that, then come and meet me at the table. I'll help you. I will walk you through it. But the gospel says that Abraham was a sinner that was saved not by his obedience, but by saved by grace through faith. And the gospel says the same thing of you, that God created you, God called you to himself, God, God gave you a way to live, and you lived in sin, and you responded in sin just like the rest of us. But God has made a way for you to be right, for you to be at peace with him. And it's through the cross of Christ. If you confess your sins, if you believe in Jesus, you will receive new life in him. A new resurrection life that gives us the hope to laugh and delight in his presence. Let's have the guys and the band come forward as we prepare for the Lord's table. I'm going to ask each one of you this morning before we receive the table to think about those three types of laughter, the laughter of derision, the laughter of despair, and the laughter of delight. Ultimately, we all want to move into that place of delight. But maybe some of us, let's have the guys that are serving communion, y'all come on, come forward. Maybe some of us are still stuck in one of those places. Will you open your heart to receive the delight that can come from the presence of Jesus? And if you're there, then who is it around you? Every one of us is called to mission. Every one of us is called to somebody who is in one of those places of great despair or even great derision. How could Jesus use me to be his covenant ambassador? So the way we do communion here, I'm going to pass these out to the guys. And we're going to take 
these, they're going to take the plates down the aisles, and they will give you the bread first, and then they'll come back and they'll give you the juice as well. And what I need you to do is just hold both pieces. Um, hold the bread and then hold the juice. They're going to sing a song while we do it. You can reflect in whatever way feels appropriate. Stand and sing. Worship and sing. Love it. Kneel down. Come to the altar and pray. Sit in silence with your family, with your spouse, or just as yourself to reflect on Jesus' body broken for you, Jesus' blood shed for you. So they'll pass out the bread and then the juice, and they'll come back, and I'll lead us all in receiving it together.